And we're back with another episode of The Anarchist Experience, episode 230, aka season 3, episode 50, uh, coming at you this week. As always, I'm your host, Mr. Rich E. Rich, uh, flying solo this week. Uh, nothing wrong with MC, for those that care. Uh, just a scheduling conflict precluded us from getting together this weekend. Uh, so you know what that means. Another rousing edition of Richie Rich Reads the News. And hopefully MC will be back joining us next week uh, with no scheduling conflict. Before we get to the actual news that I'm going to talk about, um, there's a lot of stuff uh, going on just in the general headlines of things that I'm not going to cover necessarily, but it's a little disturbing uh, as to what's going on. Um, the, uh, another uh, shooting, I guess, in Texas and some other violence at a football game uh, elsewhere as well. And it's just, man, I don't know how many, how many weeks in a row, right, at this point, if, like, if that was on the top of my news feed, could we be covering these things? Um, the other thing that disturbingly dominates the news cycle um, is is the whole uh, gender uh, equality debate and how you know sexism and racism and how that affects everything. Uh, and I'm just I, I feel like well oddly enough I feel like this show is above and should be above news of that nature. Um, but again, it crosses my feed so frequently from so many uh, outlets that would be otherwise, you know, decent sources of news material that I just I cringe every time because I don't want I don't want the discussion to devolve uh, into ra- uh, you know into racism or sexism or what this gender did or what that race did and you know, combining it all, uh, to, you know, I'm recording this show, uh, late at night on Saturday, the 31st of August, a uh, year of our Lord, 2019. Um, which means that there was just the, uh, straight pride parade down in Boston. Uh, you know, just, you know, a few hours away for me, if I wanted to go and I, you know, have uh, community members, friends, if you will, uh, that have gone down to that community members and friends. Uh, one of my, <laughs> one of my buddies from back home in Hawaii, and you know, uh, you've heard him on the show before. Went went to went to go to that thing uh, just to just to check it out, and and basically troll because that's what that's what he does best. Um, and it's so disturbing uh, to me that that's number one a thing, uh, and number two. Um, important enough of a thing to uh, raise the ire uh, and attention of the liberty movement because what the hell man like how is that how is that even uh, our issue so to speak how is that even a thing that is of concern to us All right so if you want my opinion on that nonsense which is what it is uh, a straight pie a straight pride parade uh, is just as dumb as a gay pride parade, right? I don't, I don't understand either of those because they're, uh, well, if you, be, if you believe them, right, it's something that's innate in you. You were born that way. You've always felt that way. It's not a conscious choice. It's not a decision. It's not an accomplishment uh, in life at all. And but yet we're going to celebrate it as if it were, right? How about a, how about a, a redheads? pride parade right or a, a left-hander pride parade or 
you know, or any of that type of thing uh, where it's just, no, 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 man, uh, you were just, you were just born like that. Um, and that's just the way it is. You just, you, you happen, you happen to come into the world in that state. Uh, so be proud of it, right? You know, do, do the thing that makes you proud about it. Um, you know, one of the reasons that I wasn't able to get with MC this week is because me and, uh, M were out of town going to, a, a an entirely separate type of function, right? Like a, a, a thing to, you know, bad, depending on you know, your status in life, something to actually be proud of. Uh, and that was, uh, a, a gathering for alumni of her high school, like a, a celebration, uh, as it were for the East coast affiliate affiliate division uh, of the alumni, right? Like uh, somehow, uh, high schools in Hawaii have East coast, new England representation. Uh, so they went to, you know, to gather and celebrate and, uh, you know, do a thing. And to me, like that's, that's more indicative of something to be proud of, right? You know, graduating high school, uh, for most people is not, uh, you know, is not that big of a deal. Uh, but when you've gone to like this particular school and it had then and you know the prestige that it carries uh yeah that's that's something you can be proud of you went to an elite private school uh you know in in your state and you you can celebrate that to high heaven and gather with your alumni because you know who better than you apparently right i didn't go to that school by the way so a little awkward but i think we've all outgrown that high school nonsense uh maybe um but you know so to 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 contrast that a celebration of an actual achievement, you know, to, 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 you know, to see where you've gone in life, you know, s- since those long days gone of high school compared with the trash, uh, going on in Boston, uh, you know, whether it was the straight pride or, or gay pride or whatever is so stupid. Like what well, you, you're celebrating a non thing, uh, when meanwhile you could be celebrating, uh, you know, victories, Victories for the anarchist community, uh, victories for, you know, the, for liberty in general, victories for human freedom, but no, no, they're all down there. Uh, some trolling, right? Absolutely. Go, go make fun of those idiots. Um, but for that to even be on the radar and for, for me to now spend this much time, uh, talking about it is just so ridiculous. So nonsensical. I, I long for the days uh, where my newsfeed isn't dominated with racial content or sexist content. Sexual, yeah, by all means, I'd like to bring more of that. Uh, but sexist content uh, so that we can, we can get on with the ideas and ideals of freedom, uh, of liberty, of anarchy, uh, you know, in, in our lifetime, to, to steal a phrase, uh, where we can work on things to make that happen rather than uh, fighting over nonsense that does nothing except divide on such menial uh, criteria, right? Like race and gender and skin color and whatever it happens to be, uh, that there's just, there's no room for that uh, in, if you're trying to move society forward, if you're trying to better humanity, uh, that shouldn't even, that shouldn't even come up on the radar, that shouldn't even pop up as a thing. And yet here it is, a week in, week out, more of that nonsense, uh, more school shootings, and more, you know, more of that, uh, you know, mass shootings, I should say, uh, you know, I think one was at like a, a high school football game. Does that even count as a school shooting? Who knows? Uh, but they are apparently arrested a teenager for that. I'm not going to get into that because I didn't have that as, as prep. It just boggles my mind how nasty, you know, the, the news can be, uh, 
and and what what people are willing to cover. So we'll we'll try to skip that. We'll try to keep it uh, keep it real uh, as far as I can here. Uh, and we'll you know if I if it if it happens to be the only thing in the news is that or it has some component some aspect uh, that can tie into the peaceful anarchy uh, and the you know the the movement of human liberty forward uh, then yeah maybe we'll talk about but I do by I do try my very best uh, to to not let that type of uh, news and information seep into this because it's ridiculous and I can't stand it and yet it permeates everything it's always there and i'm i'm really sick of it now that being said uh we're gonna do headlines richie rich reads the news we're gonna get into that um and because mc is not here to have a discussion with uh and because we didn't cover any headlines last week uh this is gonna be a pretty uh article reading intensive show because i've got a lot to catch up on a lot to keep up on you know my comments will be there uh as it usually is uh if i feel like it but because of the number of headlines that I got, I'm not going to read through them uh, to give you the breakdown of what could be covered. I'm just going to dive into it as best I can. So here we go. Headline, uh, Freedom versus Liberty. How subtle differences between these two big ideas changed our world. Uh, so again, something that even here um, I've used interchangeably because what's the difference really? Um, but apparently big enough or subtle enough to, to make a big difference. So let's, let's get into that. Uh, into the article. I see the liberty of the individual, not only as a great moral good in itself, or with Lord Acton as the highest political good, but also as the necessary condition for the flowering of all other goods that mankind cherishes. Moral virtue, civilization, the arts and sciences, economic prosperity, out of liberty, then, stem the glories of civilized life. Uh, Murray Rothbard. The terms freedom and liberty have become cliches in modern political parlance. Because these words are invoked so much by politician and their ilk, their meanings can almost synonymous and be used interchangeably. That's confusing and can be dangerous because their definitions are actually quite different. Uh, freedom is predominantly an internal construct. Viktor Frankl, the legendary Holocaust survival who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, said it well. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of cir circumstances, to choose one's own way in how he approaches his circumstances. In other words, to be free is to take ownership of what goes on between your ears, to be autonomous in thoughts first and actions second. Your freedom to act a certain way can be taken away from you, but your attitude about your circumstances cannot, making one's freedom predominantly an internal construct. On the other hand, liberty is predominantly an external construct. It's the state of being free within society from oppressive restrictions imposed by authority on one's way to of life. On, excuse me, on one's way of life, behavior or political view. The ancient Stoics knew this. More on that in a minute. So did the founding fathers who wisely noted the distinction between the negative and positive liberties and codified the differences in the U.S. Constitution and Bill of Rights. The distinction between negative and positive liberties in particular 
is particularly important because an understanding of each helps us understand these seminal American documents. Plus, it explains why so many other countries have copied them. The Bill of Rights is a charter of negative liberties. It says what the state cannot do to you. However, it does not say what the state must do on your behalf. This would be a positive liberty, an obligation imposed upon you by the state. Thus, in keeping with what the late Murray Rothbard said above, the liberty of the individual is the necessary condition for the flowering of all other goods that mankind cherishes. Living in liberty allows each of us to fully enjoy our freedoms. And how these two terms developed and complement one another is important for anyone desiring to better understand what it means to truly be free. The Etymology of Freedom and Liberty To better understand what freedom and liberty means, it's helpful to look at the respective etymologies of these words, digging into their histories and how they developed. Freedom comes from Old English, meaning power of self-determination, state of free will, emancipation from slavery and deliverance. There were similar variants in Old Frisians, such as Friedon, the Dutch Vridon, and Middle Old German Vridon. Uh, liberty comes from the Latin libertatum, uh, nominative libertas, which means civil or political freedom, condition of a free man, absent of restraint or permission. It's important to note that the Old French variant liberté, free will, has also shaped liberty's meaning. In fact, William R. Gregg's essay, France in January 1852, notes that the French notion of liberty is political equality, whereas the English notion is rooted in personal independence. In an interview with Lou Rockwell, Professor Butler Schaefer makes some interesting distinctions between freedom and liberty. Schaefer argues that freedom is the condition that exists within your mind, within my mind. It's that inner sense of integrity. It's an inner sense of living without conflict, without contradiction, without various divisions, and so forth. This point of view is in line with the philosophy of the Stoics. They believe that a person's body can be physically imprisoned, but not his mind. Much like Viktor Frankl famously said in his Man's Searching for Meaning, Schaefer adds to the distinction, Liberty is a condition that arises from free people living together in society. Liberty is a social condition. Freedom is the internal philosophical and psychological condition. In short, freedom is inherent to humanity. It exists within them by virtue of their humanity. Liberty is a political construct that allows people to enjoy freedoms such as property rights, free speech, freedom of association, etc. Sadly, liberty has not been the natural state of mankind. History has shown that liberty, particularly of the individual, has been distinguished feature of Western societies, especially in the early years of the United States. Negative rights versus positive rights. One of the structural problems with American politics since the advent of the progressive era in the early 20th century has been the emphasis on positive rights, a.k.a. positive liberties, a misnomer at an individual level if there ever was one, at the expense of negative ones. What are the differences between negative and positive rights? Philosopher Professor Aon Scoble uh, provides a good summary. Fundamentally, positive rights require others to provide you with either a good or service. A negative right, on the other hand, only requires others to abstain from interfering with your actions. If we are free and equal by nature, and if we believe in negative rights, any positive right would have to be grounded in consensual arrangements. For example, private property, free speech, and freedom of association are negative rights. 
In other words, these are rights that prevent others, above all the state, from transgressing on your person, on you, on you personally, or on your property. Along with these rights come responsibilities. In other words, you must bear the consequences of your actions as you exercise them. This is why you can't falsely shout fire in a theater and cause a panic without bearing the consequences of the panic you caused, as Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes noted in Schenck v. United States in 1919. Like all negative rights, free speech comes with responsibility. If you use that speech to spread information which is false and causes harm, then you're not protected carte blanche. Others can petition the courts for the panic you've caused as a result of your exercise of free speech. On the other hand, positive rights are granted by the government and involve trampling of an individual or another class of individual's rights. These kinds of rights, like the state-funded health care or public education, are justified on abstract grounds such as the public good or the general will. By their very nature, they require the state to take from one group in order to give to another, usually in the form of taxes. Appeal to the general will originates from the 18th, famous 18th century philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who emphasized that a strong government make individuals free and that individuals submit to the state for the sake of the greater good. If that sounds backwards to you, you are not alone. Author James Bovard highlights some of the follies behind Rousseau's thinking. Rousseau's concept of the general will leads him to a concept of freedom that was a parody of the beliefs accepted by British and American thinkers of his era. Rousseau wrote that the social contract required that whoever refuses to obey the general will shall be compelled to do so by the whole body. This means nothing less than that he will be forced to be free. In other words, if you don't want to go along with the will of the people, or as Rousseau defined it, the general will, then the state can compel you to do so, even if that means trampling your individual rights and responsibilities. Uh, Bovard also noted how Rousseau's concept of freedom had nothing to do with the independence of the individual. C.E. Vaughan, in a 1915 study of Rousseau's work, correctly observed that for Rousseau, freedom is no longer conceived as an independence of the individual. It is rather to be sought in his total surrender to the service of the state. Uh, Rousseau, 1712 to 78, was the first of the modern intellectuals and one of the most influential English Enlightenment thinkers. He died a decade before the French Revolution of 1789, but many contemporaries held him responsible for it and so for the demolition of the Ancien Regime in Europe. One can see how Rousseau's ideas translated into actions when comparing the French Revolution to the American one. After all, ideas matter, especially in revolutionary politics. French versus America, a tale of two revolutions. The French and American Revolution happened within a dozen years of one another, yet they centered around two very different concepts of individual liberty. For the French, the goal was to ensure political equality. For the Americans, it was personal independence. This distinction helps shed light on what made the outcomes of the two revolutions so different. The French Revolution devolved into chaos when revolutionary zealots like Maximilien Robespierre became the de facto head of the Committee of Public Safety. Under the committee's direction, Robespierre conducted the infamous Reign of Terror against all opponents of the French Revolution. Robespierre was inspired in part by Rousseau, stating, Rousseau is the one man who, through the loftiness of his soul and the grandeur of his character, showed himself worthy, worthy of the role of teacher of mankind. 
If Thomas Jefferson was to Rousseau the facilitator of the respective revolutions, then Robespierre was to General Washington the implementor. During his despotic period of leadership, Robespierre went as far as to create a cult of the supreme being, a state religion based on secularism. This was part of Robespierre's revolutionary program to completely destroy France's Roman Catholic tradition in pursuit of an, an ambiguous political equality among the masses. Instead of trying to fight for freedom-based principles like the founding fathers did, Robespierre was more concerned with destroying all features of French civic society in the name of progress. In a cruel twist of irony, Robespierre and his Committee of Public Safety behaved more like the previous French monarchy once they seized control. For that reason, the French Revolution turned into to a chaotic murder spree that saw tens of thousands of people executed at the guillotine for simply opposing Robespierre's vision. In the end, Robespierre got a taste of his own medicine when the French National Convention arrested him and put him to death on July 28, 1794. It took a young upstart general in Napoleon Bonaparte to put an end to his 15 years chaos of the French Revolution. France reverted back to a monarchical rule when Napoleon became emperor in 1804, which restored some semblance of political stability to the crisis-beleaguered nations. France reached greater heights under Napoleon's rule in which the country dominated a substantial portion of Europe. However, Napoleon would be defeated and forced into exile in 1815. France went back to its monarchical system, albeit with certain republican features, when Louis XVIII assumed the throne from 1815 to 1824. France did not morph into a genuine republic until 1848, when the Second Republic was established. However, France swung from imperial to republican governments until 1871, when the Third Republic of France came into power. The road to political stability in France was rather rocky, and the demonstration that flawed ideas about the tenuous relationship of the state's role in an individual's life can be deadly. Unfortunately, most countries across, across the globe have taken after France's example of governance as opposed to the American model. Uh, Latin America is arguably the best example of this. Condemned to mediocrity, Latin America's misunderstanding of liberty. Etched above the entrance of the Colombian Palace of Justice is a quote by General Francisco de Paula Santander. Uh, I'm not going to read it because it's Spanish. Oh, Colombian arms have given us independence. Laws will give us liberty. I'm glad they put in the translation. Santander's quote was indicative of the stark difference in political philosophies of the Latin American wars of independence from Spain and the American war of independence from Great Britain. He and his counterpart, uh, Simone Bolivar, were not inspired by classically liberal ideas of individuals' inalienable rights. Hence, Santander's belief that liberty comes from the state, not from natural law, as Thomas Jefferson wrote in the American Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Jefferson's philosophy held that an individual's unalienable rights are not given to one in a document, but by their creator and subsequently codified in the Bill of Rights in order to prevent the misconstruction or abuse of its power, as it states in the preamble. In other words, an inalienable right uh, or an unalienable right is God-given 
It is granted by a pre- it isn't granted by a president, a king, or any government. Otherwise, it can be taken away. Santander and his counterpart Bolivar didn't share Jefferson's view. Uh, Juan Bautista Alberti, one of Latin America's premier classical liberal thinkers in the 19th century, understood the major distinction behind Latin American and American wars of independence in his essay, Omnipotence of the State. Washington and his contemporaries were more interested in fighting for individual rights and liberties than just fighting for independence of their country. Once they attained the former, they were able to achieve the latter, as opposed to South American countries who won their political independence but did not obtain individual freedoms. The Founding Fathers fought, above all, for the restoration of the liberties they enjoyed as Englishmen, which were usurped by the tyrannical King George III. On the other hand, Latin American leaders were fighting for independence from Spain and not much else. There was an underlying belief in an individual's unalienable rights. Instead, in their view, these rights were granted by the state and their laws, and consequently could also be taken away. Bolivar, in particular, feared introducing too much liberty to the uneducated masses once Spanish rule ended. He foresaw anarchy, and thus believed it is the necessity of a strong central authority once Gran Colombia once Gran Colombia gained independence. Uh, Gran Colombia was made up of Colombia, Ecuador, Panama, and Venezuela. These were the views of a man raised in the Caracas elite. Bolivar was born into aristocracy in Caracas. He was a product of the Enlightenment, Enlightenment and was strongly influenced by Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Just like Robespierre in France, Bolivar was entr- entranced by Rousseau's ideas. In particular, he subscribed to Rousseau's general will concept, which called on the intellectual and educated elite to identify what is in the best interests of the people. Picture the state serving as a benevolent guiding hand, if you will, except that it won't be benevolent if you don't go along with where that hand is guiding you. Bolivar believed that the past subjugations under Spanish colonial rule left many on the Grand Colombian people ignorant and unable to acquire knowledge, power, or civic virtue. Therefore, supposedly in the name of the greater good, Bolivar believed that these people should be freed, but not given too much individual liberty. Uh, He said as much in his famous Cartagena Manifesto, uh, where it's clear he was not a fan of federalism. But what most weakens the government of Venezuela was the federalist structure it adopted, embodying the exaggerated notion of the rights of man. By stipulating that each man should rule himself, the ideas undermines social pacts and constitutes nations in a state of anarchy. Such was the true state of the confederation. Each province governed itself independently, and following this example, each city claimed equal privilege. Citing the practice of the provinces and the theory that all men and all peoples have the right to institute whatever form of government they choose. The federal system, although it is the most perfect and the most suitable for guaranteeing human happiness in society, is, notwithstanding the form, most inimicable to interests of our emerging states. In Bolivar's view, the 1812 collapse of the First Republic of Venezuela was due to its decentralized federal system, which demonstrated that the First Republic, in fact, needed to have stronger state control. After independence was achieved through most Latin America in 1821, Bolivar established Gran Colombia, an even larger territory with stronger centralized power. Bolivar had lofty aspirations for Gran Colombia. He saw it as a potential powerhouse that would rival the U.S. and European powers by implementing Rousseau's general will concept. However, Bolivar's dream did not go as planned. By 1828, Gran Colombia was on the ropes due to internal turmoil and political infighting.
There is a parallel here with the U.S. Articles of Confederation. It lasted eight years before the Continental Congress in Philadelphia replaced it with the U.S. Constitution, primarily because the federal government was too weak to pay the Revolutionary War debts. Grand Columbia lasted seven years before it began to implode. However, unlike the Continental Congress, which convened to replace the U.S. Articles while still protecting an individual's inalienable rights, Bolivar dissolved the Constitutional, dissolved the Constitutional Convention of Ocaña because he was unable to reform the Constitution of Gran Colombia. He then did what all good dictators do. He declared himself in charge of the Republic of Colombia, making it abundantly clear that Colombia was, no, in fact, no longer a republic. The Gran Colombia experiment would come to a grinding halt in 1830, when Ecuador, New, Gran New Granada, present-day Colombia, and Venezuela decided to break away and carve out their own national paths. Gran Colombia's dissolution made Bolivar pause and reflect. At the end of his life, he'd been driven out of politics, into exile, and knew he would die soon. In his letter to General Juan José Flores, plowing the sea, Bolivar was blunt about his concerns for Latin America's future. You know that I have ruled for 20 years, and I have derived from these only a few conclusions. One, Latin America is ungovernable for us. Two, those who serve revolutionary plow the sea. The only thing, three, well, the only thing one can do in Latin America is emigrate. Four, the country will fall inev inevitably into the hands of the unrestrained multitudes and then into the hands of tyrants so insignificant they will be almost imperceptible of all colors and races. Five, once we've eaten alive, once we've been eaten alive by every crime and extinguished by ferocity, the Europeans won't even bother to conquer us. Six, if it were possible for any part of the world to revert to primitive chaos, it would be last in America in her last hour. Since then, Latin America would experience decades of political and economic instability, despotism, the non-existent rule of the rule of law, and the economic interventionisms have all been hallmarks of Latin America politics for the past century and a half. One could argue this is due to the fact that there is no philosophical basis in an individual's unalienable right. It is only a matter of power. One needn't look further than present-day Venezuela to see what happens when collectivism becomes part and parcel of the political culture. Ideas like individual liberty and personal responsibility form the philosophical bedrock of a functioning republic. Their adoption can be the difference between generational poverty or prosperity for nations. A warning to the United States. The manipulation of what liberty and an individual rights and responsibilities constitute has already been made has already made its way to the US where the lack of understanding of what liberty truly means has been apparent since the advent of the progressive era during this period political pundits and economic theorists became obsessed with scientism which is the over-reliance or over-application of the scientific method as a means of trying to move society forward towards an ambiguous utopia Instead of focusing on the defense of foundational principles like liberty and the rights and responsibilities of the individual, 20th century intellectuals focused more on scientific ways to plan society from the top down. The state would obviously be the main driver, and its central planning would make people free. However, such a view encountered pushback during the 20th century. Economist Ludwig von Mises courageously stood up to his top-down vision and exposed the limits of his science in his work, Planned Chaos. Science is competent to establish what is. It can never dictate what ought to be.
Mises' warning unfortunately fell on deaf ears. Progressivism's apex came about during the administration of Woodrow Wilson. In that period, the income tax and the Federal Reserve were established, while the U.S. embarked on its most expansive foreign adventures to date, when the Wilson administration, supported by powerful bankers like J.P. Morgan, led America into World War I under false pretenses, lying about the sinking of the passenger ship uh, the Lusitania by German submarines. This war would pave the way for increasing levels of government intervention as witnessed during the New Deal and the Great Society eras, where the warfare welfare state became even more consolidated. To this day, Washington's power in the lives of private citizens continues to grow without much pushback. Discussions about freedom and liberty, as well as the important distinction between negative and positive liberties, which form the bedrock of the U.S. Constitution and Bill of Rights, have become quite quaint as people use these words in Orwellian fashion to justify a litany of government intrusions into our lives. When we let their meanings become obscured, we cede to those whose underlying goal is more state power and the ability to manipulate the public for their own tyrannical ends. We not only need to comprehend the differences between freedom and liberty, but also recover their original meaning so that there is foundational clarity in political discussion uh end of the article and i know that was a long one so thank you for sticking with it and i'll be honest that uh article was a little bit more comprehensive than i originally anticipated so i'm just gonna move right along uh because we got so much more uh to to read through here uh so moving on headline how property rights can help preserve the amazon rainforest because uh, this is another big one over the past few weeks, as it burned, as the force, as the lungs of the earth was set ablaze, and no one could do anything. Uh, how could we stop that from happening in the future? How can we preserve the rainforest, uh, the lungs of the earth, the way that me and you live and breathe uh, going forward? So here we go. How property rights can help preserve the Amazon rainforest. There is currently a furor, see here we go, on social media and the news over what is occurring in the Amazon rainforest, the second largest biome in the world. Not only are a store of exotic animals and fauna threatened, the carbon input and oxygen output of the forest have an immense effect on the environment, which decreases the rate of global warming. According to the National Institute for Space Research, a unit of the Brazilian Ministry of Science, fires are up 80% this year compared to the same period last year. Who's to blame? There is a blame game going on over the true cause of the fires. Some environmentalists and activists are blaming Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro, uh, whose administration is accused of not doing enough to combat deforestation. Bolsonaro, for his part, has suggested that non-governmental organizations and, and non-profits are to blame, deliberately setting fire to the rainforest because they have lost money and want to embarrass his administration. But the INPE claims the true cause of the unusual number of fires this year is ranchers and farmers using fires to clear land that they used for themselves. The INPE claimed up to 99% of the fires can be attributed to these people. However, this might suggest that only one thing may to blame. The tragedy of the commons. A grand tragedy. When something is owned by everyone, such as a public highway or pond, in practice, it is owned by no one. No one has an incentive to maintain or take care of the good because they receive no benefit from doing so. 
But when there are property rights over something, such as the piece of land you live on, you have an incentive to take care of it because you directly benefit from it. Economists have observed this phenomenon hundreds, if not thousands of times. Ted Turner and Buffalo Rancher bought the Buffalo population back from the brink of extinction because of property rights. Fishermen almost fished the population of British Columbia habitat halibut, excuse me. Fishermen almost fished the population of British Columbia habitat halibut. Oh, I did it again. Into extinction and property rights brought back their population. In many regions of Africa, trophy hunting helps to keep populations of certain animals from dipping to extinction levels and helps to fund conservation. Something similar could be achieved in the Amazon rainforest. The rainforest covers part of nine countries, but roughly 60% of it is in Brazil. Brazil makes a claim to ownership of the Amazon. But Brazil and the other countries don't have the resources or proper incentive structures to take care of the Amazon. The answer could be property rights. The benefits of privatization. And Brazil recognizes this. In 2009, Brazil launched the Legal Land Program, which gave small plots of rainforest to thousands of individual farmers and ranchers. According to experts, this had a substantial impact on the rate of deforestation in the Amazon, with 2% more forest being left intact than would have been otherwise. This may not sound like a lot, but when considering the scale of the Amazon, it's a big difference. More than 20% of the world's rainforests have been cut down due to illegal slash-and-burn practices, Reuters reported in 2010. Privatizing the land incentivizes timber companies and farmers to responsibly use their land, only cutting down trees to the point where they can grow back. This is why Brazil expanded its logging concessions from 370,000 acres in 2010 to 27 million acres. Privatization reduces illegal logging, added jobs, and generated tax revenue for Brazil. It's not a perfect solution, Fast Company reported at the time. Legitimate corporations like Sinar Moss Group's Asia Pulp and Paper are often accused of unsustainable logging practices, but it's better than the alternative. Property rights in Brazil. If Brazil and some other countries could expand or start these kinds of programs all across the Amazon, illegal burning and deforestation of the Amazon would be curbed, and the world would continue to enjoy the beauty and aid to the environment that places like the Amazon bring to the world. Some may find it detestable that in order to save some animals we have to kill some, or that in order to save some forests we have to farm some. Uh, that's a feeling worth sympathy, but as Thomas Sowell, Sowell once said, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. And if it means saving animals or the Amazon from extinction and deforestation, that's a trade-off I'm willing to take. Uh, end of the article. It's funny that property rights seems to be the answer for so many problems uh, facing the world uh, prior and present uh, that it's it's a wonder why it's not looked at uh, as a more viable solution by the general public, right? It's always it's always the uh, elite economic outlets and liberty-minded papers and publications that that uh, understand uh, what I'm going to call is a truism, um, and that is you know uh, people take care. People are more likely to take care of things that they're incentivized to take care of, right? I mean, it just just happens to be that way uh whether whether you think so whether it feels good for you or not whether you like the idea of you know 
of, of public ownership of things, or if you're one of those dirty commies, uh, communal ownership of things or no ownership of things, uh, you just, you, you, you don't understand or you misunderstand or you choose to ignore uh, the fact that no, no, <laughs> there, there's not going to be uh, communal ownership uh, or communal caretaking of things, right? You might have the one guy, you know, early on, early, early on, who goes like, well, I want to use it and therefore uh, I'm going to care for it uh, and, and so benefit everybody else. Um, but, you know, eventually, you see that you know, they don't care for it. They don't assist you in caring for it. They just go about their own thing and take it, take advantage of the fact that you uh, are caring for it. And, you know, it, it might take a, you know, a very high level, high functioning human being to ignore this. Uh, but most people, I would, uh, I would say, would get frustrated, completely frustrated with being the only one putting resources into caring for a thing. Uh, that other people only extract uh, benefit from, right? They they don't add they don't add resources to it. They don't help care for it. They just they just take from it. Um, and if you're the only one putting in and everyone's taken out, eventually, uh, it, you know your your ability your labor uh, runs thin, right? You just choose not to do it anymore. Um, and then what happens? Well, then then you have the the you know the ancient at this point concept of the tragedy of the commons which is the, you know, public goods go to shit, uh, and real, you know, real quickly, uh, because there's no incentive to take care of it. I mean, it's, it's, it's really an incentives based model. Uh, if you like it you care for it, you take care of it. Uh, if you don't, you don't, um, even if you're getting the benefit from it, you know, the, in, if you're, if you're receiving benefit from a public good, right. And, and you're, and, Everyone is receiving that benefit and only one or, you know, handful of people or whatever are putting any resources into keeping the benefits going. It just eventually dries up. You just can't have it anymore. Uh, and it's, again, it's ironic that it's always these elite publications. And this is from Fee, if, you, if you're wondering, um, but, you know, lack, for lacking of a better term, um, that recognize this. Every, every place else in the world, mainstream media, the way uh, the political structure and system is going, it's all about, you know, for the good, right? Like, the, like that comprehensive first article, for the good of the collective, for the good of all, for, you know, for, for the benefit of everyone. And who must administer this benefit for everyone? Since, of course, no one person is capable. Well, the state, right? So then all of a sudden, the state takes control of it. Uh, but as we know, the state is, you know, just simply other people looking for control and power. Uh, and once they get control of it, um, it's it's things get done to their individual benefit uh, using the state as a mechanism of achieving that, right? That's how they go about getting the things that they want. So it has nothing to do with actual taking care of the property. In this case, the rainforest, right? If you, if the, if the, if you really wanted the rainforest to be cared for, uh, like the article suggests, you just privatize it, right? You, you, you lay uh, ownership claim. You let people lay ownership claim to sections of it, right? Uh, you, in the case of, you know, where, where countries maintain control, um, they relinquish it, right, to either, you know, uh, companies or individuals or, or homesteaders or anything. Um, and it, it's possible that there's just certain areas that nobody would want. Um, so that could remain uninhabited, unowned um, until someone lays a claim. 
And in which case, you know, if you got logging companies doing all their work down there, I would assume that they would want the land and they would want to be able to log it and they would want to be able to continue logging it uh, indefinitely, right? It's not going to be a, uh, a hack and slash, okay, we've made our money and we're out, right? <laughs> you know, in which case, uh, who knows what could be done with the land? I'm not even going to speculate on that, um, but say it becomes deforested in some way uh, where it's no longer good for logging. Well, then it gets put to other use, right? You know, they, they already talked about uh, clearing for farmlands to, to plant other crops. Uh, so so there you go, right? It's, it already has other uses outside of being, uh, you know, a forest for logging. Uh, and if it's that essential to the ecosystem where we're all going to die uh, if, if you know, if for some reason it gets cut down, well, loggers want to live, right? Companies making that much profit uh, would want to stay around and be around for a while. So there's, n- there's zero incentive to, you know, to destroy the planet completely where there's n- where everyone dies uh, because that's n- that's in no one's best interest uh, and things that are in no one's best interest where rarely come to pass uh, by human choice and action right who benefits from everyone dying if you, if you can answer that well then that would be the guy you know to, to keep, keep an eye on um, but I don't think there's anyone out there going like oh no where the, where the corporations benefit if everyone on the planet earth dies uh, no they don't because then they got nothing to make. They got no one to sell to, you know, even so far as, you know, if you, if you really want to get morbid with this, as the population dwindles from lack of oxygen, right, the, and the forest starts to regrow because there's less demand for paper goods and logging and wood, right, <laughs> then you, re, you, re, you, you get back to a harmonious balance uh, between man and nature. Uh, but I, I just, you know, I, I, that's probably going a little too far, but hey, it's, it's a possibility, right? Uh, but yeah, so privatize everything, uh, privatize all the things, and you know let 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 private property owners uh, sort it out amongst them. It seems to be, um, it seems to be the basis for uh, harmonious interactions between human beings, right? You have to start somewhere, because um, if you if you start nowhere. Um, then every, everything devolves into nothingness, right? Which is not where we want to be. Um, but we want to be peaceful. We want to live in harmony with our neighbors and our, our environment and nature. Um, and the easiest, the best way to do that is some sort of establishment of property rights, um, not state sponsored property. Cause that's the other thing, right? The commies, uh, and you know, the, those people will say, well, you can't have property without the state because the state is the one who grants property rights to the individual. And again, they miss a step. Um, it goes back to, again, that, that comprehensive first article that we just went through the different types of freedom and the different types of Liberty, right? It's not state granted property rights. Um, it's, it's mutually agreed upon property rights, right? I, I believe I own this plot of land. Uh, I've staked my claim. Um, and if you challenge my claim, uh, we can either sort this out uh, peacefully, right? Where I, where, where I show you where I've made my claim and I document going back to when I've made my claim. And maybe I have a third party, uh, you know, claim insurance company or documenter or, you know, someone who, who recognizes those sorts of things just to get them on the record, uh, to, you know, like the, like the title office. But, you know, in a, in a free society, there wouldn't be a state-run and state-sponsored thing. Um, and if you still disagree, well, then it devolves to violence. 
Um, but if there were no property rights, violence is on the outset, right? Like, this is mine. No, this is mine. Bang, right? And, and someone wins and someone loses and it goes to the winner, right? So uh, I've always said properties, you know, that which is mutually agreed upon or that which you can defend. Um, either way, uh, it, it requires no state uh, to, to exist, but you start at a level of property rights um, at some sort of, of ownership establishment of ownership over the things or the land um, to incentivize you to care for it, right? If, if, if anyone can come and take it outright, um, you know, and just, oh, no, it's mine now. Uh, you, you, you left it. You went, you, you left it. So now, now I'm sticking my claim. Well, then, yeah, no, nothing gets done and everything devolves to violence. So if we want to live peacefully and harmoniously, there has to be some, some fundamental foundational agreement between individuals. Um, and in my opinion, and, and again, formed over a while, um, and again, reading elite books, you know, and, and articles and publications that make sense to me, uh, the, the best place to start that foundation is a mutual establishment, a mutual agreement on what is mine and what is yours uh, and how we can trade to better each other rather than uh, fighting to, to take from each other. Like that doesn't, that's, that's not harmonious. That's not peaceful. That's not even freedom in the sense of the word, uh, because it's, it's, you know, it's, or that's not liberty in the sense of the word from the earlier article, uh, because you're never free to do as you please with your things. You're always, uh, at the, at the, at the whim of someone who is trying to take it from, and that, that doesn't benefit anybody. That's just, again, a a devolution, uh, into violence, uh, that, could benefit some, um, but they, you know, they won't, they won't last long enough, uh, to, to, to reap any of the rewards from that sort of behavior, right? All the, all the marauders, all the, the raiders, uh, are, are extinct at this point, right? <laughs> there's no one, you know, there's, there's no, there's no, uh, there's no society like that, um, you know, trouncing about the planet, uh, just, uh, you know, pillaging and raping and plundering uh, cities to to for conquest anymore like we're we're pretty well past that point uh in history and you can uh, again you can bring up the u.s military uh, as as you know a a conquest driven uh empire building organization and i'll grant you that um but it's a it's a very small part of American society. Um, it's not like you know the the societies of old where that's what they did, right? Um, you know, think the 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 Vikings, the Berserkers, etc. Um, the Native Americans. Oh, did I say it? Yes, I did. Um, but you get the idea. You know, there's 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 nothing like that really going on at a society level, um, and there's a good reason for it, right? It's it's a it's a short life. It's a violent life. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't move your society any more forward um, than it did, you know, for that brief moment in time where you were able to to, you know, pillage and plunder. All right, moving on. Headline: Unsettling study names American police as sixth leading cause of death for young men. A rather shocking study published this month by the Proceedings for the National Academy of Sciences named police officers as the sixth leading cause of death among young men. Police killings were only preceded in frequency by accidental death, a category that includes drug overdoses and car accidents, at 76.6 deaths per 100,000, followed by suicide, 26.7, other homicides, 22, heart disease, 7, and cancer, 6.3. 
These killings by police included shootings, chokings, beatings, and various other ways police have taken the lives of Americans. Police violence is a leading cause of death for young men in the United States, the study explains. Over the life course of about one in every 1,000 black men can be expected to be killed by police. Risk of being killed by police peaks between the age of 20 years and 35 years for men and women for all racial and ethnic groups. Black women and men and American Indian and Alaska Native women and men are significantly more likely than white women and men to be killed by police. Latino men are also more likely to be killed by police than are white men. Even more damning than finding out that the police are leading cause of death for young men is the fact that the lead researcher of the study and an assistant professor at the School of Criminal Justice at Rutgers University, Frank Edwards, says the numbers may be an undercount. Police departments have very little incentive to record the number of deaths, nor are they mandated to do so, Edwards said. Since 2015, independent outlets have stepped up and conducted counts of their own because the police will not do it. With these, what these counts show is that since 2015, police in America have claimed the lives of 4,514 citizens. The apologists will claim that these thousands of Americans all deserve to die because police would never shoot innocent people. However, that couldn't be further from the truth. While some of these citizens were armed and dangerous, others were innocent, unarmed, and include small children. Daniel Shaver was one of these people whose lives was brought to a screeching halt as he begged on his knees for police not to shoot him. Despite being innocent and unarmed, the father of three was murdered in cold blood by Philip Brazelford, uh, who was never held accountable and allowed to retire from the police force with his pension. Jeremy Martis was another one of these citizens who was gunned down in cold blood by two killer cops. Uh, Martis was just six years old when he was murdered by these killer cops, one of whom was released in June months after serving less than two years for his role in this innocent child's death. The list goes on. Yet despite its increasing length, most American citizens think they're, that reigning in America's deadly police problem or even talking about it is somehow unpatriotic or un-American. Instead of, instead of the right realizing the threat to freedom caused by cops who can kill thousands with impunity, they blame the left. Instead of the left realizing the threat to freedom caused by cops who kill with impunity, most of them blame guns. <clears throat> the result of this complacency and failure to address the problem has been less freedom and more gun grabs. Clearly, the above solution has done nothing to curb the problem on, as an average of three Americans are killed every day by police. Although many police choose to ignore it or claim it doesn't exist, the current system of policing in America only serves to perpetuate racial disparity and inequality in terms of treatment under the law. Uh, there's clear evidence that shows the harmful and distinct way police violence expands inequality, Edward said, citing other research that shows stop and frisk and aggressive policing can affect both mental and physical health. Policing plays a key role in maintaining structural inequality between people of color and white people in the United States. If you doubt this, you need only look at the war on drugs and the problems it presents to minorities as they find themselves victims to far more police brutality and harsher penalties in regards to drug enforcement despite using the same rate as their white counterparts.
Congressman Ron Paul has been saying this for decades. Black people are tried and imprisoned disproportionately. They suffer the consequences of the death penalty disproportionately. Rich white people don't get the death penalty very often, and most of these are victimless crimes. Uh, sometimes people can use drugs and get arrested three times and never committed a violent act, and they can go to prison for life. I think there's a discrimination... I think there's discrimination in the system, but you have to address the drug war. Uh, I would say the judicial system is probably one of the worst places where prejudice and discrimination still exist in this country. We've seen the outcome of ignoring the problem or attempting to rationalize it, and it is more of the same. Until drastic shifts in policy are implemented that hold bad cops accountable, we can expect no change. Until police officers are held personally responsible for the damage they unleash, nothing will change. Until the drug war is brought to a screeching halt, racial disparity, unnecessary violent police interactions, and death will continue to be the calling card for law enforcement in the land of the free. End of the article. I'm not a big fan of cops. Uh, I may have been as a child, uh, <laughs> but w once you grow up and start to see what's really going on, uh, that uh, illusion or delusion quickly vanishes, uh, especially here uh, in the United States. Um, you know, based on based on the news, based on personal interactions, you know, just based on uh, the knowledge of what they're there to do for you versus what they're there to do for themselves. Um, and I find it uh, ironic a bit that, you know, people on the far right, the alt-right, um, who who got there through the liberty space, through the, you know, through libertarianism, um, maybe through anarchism uh, at some point, don't know how you make that leap, uh, are now the ones, you know, going like, well, the cops are supposed to protect us, uh, you know, when, when they go out to their protests, right, and they, and they come face to face with the violence of the left, the Antifa crowd from the left, uh, you know, with their bats and chains and whips and whatever, and they go like, where, where are the police, uh, where are they supposed to protect? us uh, i go well you you do remember when when you talked about the police as a bad thing and how they weren't there to protect you right like you do remember having those beliefs like the the situation hasn't changed the the cops are still not there uh to protect you they're still not there to provide you with the service you're not paying them anything uh that they haven't already taken from you you know they're not they're not there for you they're there for them um and a lot of these you know violence uh violence against citizens right the the excuse the cops that you know has at the end of the day is well i had to get home safe to my family so i had to kill that guy uh you know, so they're not they're not there to make sure that you get home safe. They're there to make sure that they get home safe, uh, no matter the cost. All right. Uh, I'll, I'll briefly tell this story because one time I was pulled over and it was, you know, nighttime and the cop comes to the window. and He's like shining the light in like bright light in my face. Um, and I had a little, you know, little tiny flashlight in my bag and I, I pinched it and shine it right back in his face. Uh, and he proceeded to tell me how dangerous that was and you know how how da how dangerous his job is and how it could get violent at any time and i, was, and I, I p politely explained to him that the the easiest way for him to not put himself in a dangerous situation is not to pull random people over for having not harmed anybody else right if you don't if you don't want to if you want to make it home safe to your family just leave people alone uh that aren't harming anybody else right you don't you don't need to go around uh killing black folk and killing latino folk and killing you know native american folk uh you just you just let them be uh, and then you do your job 
right, which is, you know, uh, allegedly uh, to protect and serve uh, when someone calls you, right? When, when you need a police officer uh, for something, right, you call them and they, they can show up and take the report and then go home and do nothing, um, which is why it's important to be able to defend yourself. A uh, whole other topic that we won't get into. Uh, but even in those instances, right, like may, maybe police serves a valuable function, um, but and if, you're, and if you're paying for it, you're incentiv- incentivizing them to do it because you want their services, um, then maybe, you know, they can come and protect you uh, before it's too late. Maybe. I'm not holding my breath. I don't, I, don't, I don't see them as being too useful at all. You know, maybe, maybe as a private security company for an event, right, they can, they can police the event uh, because, you know, who knows what might happen. I'm just spitballing right now because I really don't see any value in having those people around at all. But if you do, right, may, maybe make it that. Maybe make it where you call them and then they come uh, and they help you who has called them, you know, as an, as an agent of the caller. Right, not as a a, a special over overarching force, force for good, uh, force for good in society that you know is there to protect and serve people. No, you, you help the person who called uh, as their agent. Right, if they have a, a natural right to self defense, then they, they can they can give that right to you to protect them uh, through, through again through agency. Uh, but aside from that, there's no use. Uh, right, all they they're they're there for the violence. Um, and they committed, uh, again, with impunity uh, against a disproportionate uh, minority, right? And, and who needs that, right? If we're, if, again, if, we're, if the goal is harmony and peace and trade with each other uh, within the community and, and outside the community, then you can't have, you know, this violent raiding force. Uh, yeah, there's a term again, raiding. This violent force, raiding force going through the community, just beating on people and killing them for, for no good reason, Right jailing people for no good reason other than you disagree with one of their lifestyle choices that has no other bearing on you so as as and as long as they're doing this right then at some point right there there has to be uh i'm gonna say backlash so i don't get in trouble for for advocating violence against police uh but there has to be some sort of defensive force used against those committing aggressive acts against innocent, uh, nonviolent, peaceful people. Uh, take that as you will and do with it as you please. Uh, and that's all I have to say about that. And I'm pressed up against the clock, so I'm going to wrap it up here as well. Uh, thank you very much for listening, everybody. You know where to find us, anarchistexperience.com, minds.com slash the anarchist experience. And if you'd like to contribute to the show financially, do it through Patreon, patreon.com slash the anarchist experience. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you all next week. Peace.